Hello, we are the makers of history. With me, Foz, and Ross. Say hello, Ross. Hello. What do you know then, bruv? How you been? Ah, I'm alright. I'm lucky to have survived to make it to the studio today, to be honest. I say studio, what I mean is my... (laughs) The downstairs room in my house in which I record. (laughs) It's... I was getting into the podcast, I think. <laughs> Not much making up story, yeah. Like, we travelled to the just, studio, we got... Well, no, we... <laughs> I meant it in more like a metaphysical, oh. conceptual way. Yeah, the conceptual of a history studio in our minds. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, now I'm following that sound. <laughs> yeah, no, so, so I had, like... Um, so in Czech Republic, you can return beer bottles after you finish with them. Because you know, it's a civilized country, not like the UK, where you, yeah, just, you, just know, you throw them, them at each other, <laughs> toss them at Wales. <laughs> <laughs> I'll toss a bottle at her. So anyway, so I had like. Why ain't got no waters left? Because we chucked all the bottles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I had loads of bottles to return because you know I have a problem. Ran out of bottles to chuck them at. Okay, yeah. Um, and also, I've started it to restock for today. So, I because I've been buying like increasingly exotic beer, I had to go to like the big hypermarket the other side of town, which meant driving through where I live at like uh, rush hour, like 5 pm. And I don't know what it is in this place. It's only like 100,000 people live here, but I've never seen so many car crashes. Literally, like five times, someone nearly went into me. Two times, I had to swerve because they are on my side of the road. And at one point I had to like stop for 10-15 minutes while another crash was cleared out of the way for me to continue. Sounds like fun, mate. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> like a good day. Man, they, they must be like still using lead paint here or something. Yeah, Mad Max in it, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds like a fun time. Yeah, I'm alright. I've actually got um, I've got a question based off your story. Go on. You said you've got ex- increasingly exotic beers. What would be the most exotic beer? I don't know. I think the sort of thing that you can only buy from like. Because exotic you... makes it sound like not just, uh, not just rare, but tropical. And I think like exotic. Tropical. Imagine the sort of place where you can buy it like once a month in one pub in one village if you do a secret knock on the door. Yeah. Okay. So. Anyway, yeah, we're whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so how are you? <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm all right, yeah, just been pondering where exotic things come from, but uh, apart from that, I've been all right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, all good, man, all good. Not really going on massive, the extension's rattling away. Oh, actually, I had a clearance for my party wall agreement today, which means I can start digging the foundations next week, so that's bonus. Man, we have like the most middle-aged podcast. Nah, yeah, I've, got to, I've still got to talk to Seven Trent Water about getting me fucking pod rooting different. So, yeah, <laughs> that's my life at the moment. To be honest, yeah. building really cool. shit. But no, it's going, it's going okay. Um, I'm on my second from last week of notice for new job. So yeah, next week's my last week at my current job. Been on notice for like three months. It's been killing me. Like, the first month. Like, I was like, right, I'm going to finish my notice. It's a three-month notice. I'm going to try and work hard. Like, I don't want to burn any bridges. I want to you know, crack on and that. But after like two months and two weeks, it's hard, man. It's just hard to keep going. Yeah. Every morning I wake up, I'm like, oh, I could just not go. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm not. 
But yeah, it's long, man. <laughs> Apart from that, yeah, I'm doing fantastically well. Thank you very much, mate. Yeah. Um, what you got to tell us then? What we're we talking about? What do we know? Who are we going to talk about? And what are we going to look forward to? All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we finished up last Oh, mate, hang on. We didn't even talk about what we've drunk drinking yet. Yeah. We're all out of sleep. doing? No. Trying to get the content? Yeah, no, listen. Right, this is actually the second time we've recorded this because, <laughs> full disclosure, we've both got brand new microphones. Woo! New microphones, so hopefully it sounds better. We've both got the same microphone as well because we're blood brothers and that's the way yeah. we roll. You know what I mean? Just keep it real. <laughs> uh... But yeah, so we've both got new microphones. I can't remember where I was going with this story. We also talking about the microphones, Bart. Because Oh, we... yeah. Yeah, so we set up the new microphones. We started recording. It sounded great. We did a little test recording. And then when we started doing the podcast, Ross decided to move his chair and sit really close to the microphone. So when we've, <laughs> I've, I've paused it. Like We've had a little pause and I've listened back and all you can hear is like popping of the microphone, basically. So... Like We've already had this conversation. Full disclosure. <laughs> it's, a, it's an act. It's a it's a fugazi. This conversation. <laughs> it's a, It's not real. Do you know what I mean? Have but, you been at the thesaurus again? Oh, I have a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now what it is? It's because I keep reading your your notes and they're all long words, so I'm been expanding my my vocab. But yeah, so we've had to re-record it. But we've got yeah. new microphones, so they sound good. So there we're at. So yeah, I forgot. Yeah. So what's what are you drinking? Talk to us all about what you're drinking. Give us the lowdown. So I've got another new one for today, which is a Samson, Ooh. which is. Did you buy Hercules? No, but it's is the one from the Bible. If you cut his hair, he becomes weak. Oh yeah, he was a big Samson muscly and man, Delilah. Right? Yeah. Mm. Um. So yeah, it's a beer from Cheske Budiavitsa. The Second most famous, at best, Czech beer from Czechia Budivica. I'd say you get it in the supermarkets here. Samson, really? No, not Samson, Budvar. Budvar, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, that's the actual Czechia Budivica one. Which is, like, you know, the historic name is Budweiser, hence Budweiser. Yeah, but then the Americans stole Budweiser, so they've had to call it Budvar. Yeah, essentially, something like that. The Budvar one, I think it's owned by the Czech state. It's oh, cool. slightly weird setup. Anyway, so Samson's like a, a smaller brewery in Jeske Budivitsa, but it was bought by AB InBev as like their way of leveraging onto the Czech beer market. Okay. Which, unfortunately for them, not a great beer. Ah, well, that sucks, <laughs> then. How many of them you got? Uh, got one and a half left, I think. Um, I bought it solely because it was an offer, and I do kind of regret that was a little bit of a false economy. Well, it depends how good the offer was. If you're saving hundreds and hundreds of pounds, then it would be worth <laughs> it. But how much exactly did you save on said purchase? Um, so for my two beers I bought, I saved 12 crowns. Which, which is the equivalent of? A bit less than 50p. That's gone up since you said it last time because no, because last time we figured it out for one beer, whereas I've worked out the total spend. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the origin story. I yeah, yeah, it. I expanded this. Yeah, it's no, a cinematic universe of Samsung beer. <laughs> um, yeah, so for that 50 fifty p fifty euro cent, um, yeah, wasn't nice. worth it. Wasn't worth it. That happens, no. mate. 
Can't win them all, <laughs> can you? You seem to be losing more often though with the beer selection because you had the one beer that was off the other week. That was heartbreaking because that should have been really good, but yeah. they, they got me. I just see that you're carefully lifting your dragon soup into yeah. frame, literally like you're doing the hang on, hang on, hang on. Then. I'll give you the origin story of more drink Go on. crafted in the laboratories of Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no, I read that. It's uh, Carnesborough. I don't know where it's from, but it's probably made in a laboratory because it tastes like chemicals. (laughs) By laboratory, you mean back of a chicken shop. Yeah, just in a big vat. (laughs) (laughs) Chuck the grease in there. Yeah, the hairy geese with a huge spoon stirring it. (laughs) More peach. (laughs) I don't know what accent that was, but it's... I hope it wasn't offensive. That's what your voice <laughs> sounds like after your briefing dragon suit fumes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, bloody hell. But yeah, nah, sound brother. I'm drinking <laughs> dragon soup as always. I got a raspberry, it's actually my second one, to be fair. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I got a raspberry alarm after the after the raspberry and preach. So, all good, bruv. It's a fruit cocktail of dragon soup. <laughs> Basically, one of your father. <laughs> <laughs> People are actually going to start thinking we're sponsored by Dragon Soup. Yeah. And I would say of all the every episode, we intro Dragon Soup very well at some point. So, Dragon Soup, you're out there. I'm waiting for the sponsorship. <laughs> Send me the sponsorship. <laughs> we'll tell everyone how shit your drink is and we'll also, you know, push it on our podcast about Hitler. Yeah, yeah, Hitler loved Dragon Soup. <laughs> on top of your Hitler... What are we talking about today, then, bruv? We've rattled right. on for like 10 minutes, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> Normally, the intro is only five minutes. What are we talking about then? So, we finished up last week with essentially how different conservative elements in Germany kind of maneuvered Hitler into power, thinking they were going to control him, right? Yeah. So, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at what the Nazis were like as a government before the war. And we're going to be looking at their beliefs. What did they really aim to achieve? Why did they do the things that they did? I can tell you one thing they believed in. God. They didn't like Jewish people. They I mean, did pretty, not. I think that's actually pretty well documented. Your <laughs> there was quite some substantial <laughs> evidence for that one, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. They did not like Jewish people. Um, Where does that this, come from? So this is a thing that's kind of... I think we kind of forget this today, and we don't really get it on the same... And the, um, it seems a bit hard for us to understand because the world has changed a lot since 1945. People in the early 20th century, basically everybody was casually anti-Semitic and it was perfectly acceptable. Like, I suppose not... they were also casually anti-every nation as well. Yeah, casually anti-Irish, black, Catholic, whatever. Yeah, It was perfectly okay to be like that and people just were. So pretty much any of your favourite historical figures from the early 20th century... Don't look at anything they said or wrote about the Jews if you still want to like them. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's okay if you hate everyone equally, though. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So, I mean, this is the thing I like to understand is people just casually did not like Jews and the Nazis really meant it when they said they really hated them. Um, Hitler himself, his own anti-Semitism... Um, a lot of it can be traced to his attempts when he was young to become an artist and he was rejected by the Vienna Art Academy. Uh, things to remember is Hitler is Austrian, not German. And when we say Austria, he was born in the Austrian Empire, not like 
modern Republic of Austria. It was like on the border of Bavaria, weren't it? Yeah. Because I think he was quoted saying like he was born in Austria, but it was a very like Bavarian town or something. He says in one of his like memoirs or something. And another thing to be aware of is like Austrian national identity, like we think of it, like you know the country of Arnold didn't exist. Yeah. The Austrians was a much bigger country as well. Yeah, but like the Austrian Germans thought of themselves as German. They didn't think of themselves as being Austrian. Anyway, so part of the uh, personal journey for Hitler is that he's rejected at the Vienna Art Academy and he blames it on Jewish professors who don't understand his genius. But anti-Semitism is kind of widespread throughout Europe. And it's... I mean, this is one of the things where it's taught in school it gets kind of lost. Because definitely for me, when I was doing this at uh, secondary school... The narrative was along the lines of, oh yeah, and Hitler saw these problems and he was really clever because he picked a scapegoat to blame everything on and he blamed everything on the Jews. And this version of the story makes it sound like, okay, Hitler's just kind of cynical when he just picked a group, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the Jews. It could have been ginger Anyone, people, yeah. anybody. Um, and it kind of misses the context. So, anti- I actually seven- read that... Um... There was like a, a soldier that served with Hitler in mm-hmm. World War One, and he was noted saying back then. So this is when they were serving in World War One. So this is way before he was noted to say like, "Ah, oh, he was mad like for hating on the Jews all the time." <laughs> but obviously, he didn't say that because he was German. So he's like, "Yeah, he gives he it, was you know, mad like... <laughs> for hating on the Jews all the time." <laughs> but he was, you know, he's quoted like even back then as being like really, mm. really. I think the quote was something like. He was noted on numerous occasions, his hatred of Jews. Um, this could not have came from the Jewish officers ordering him around or something like that. I think it mm-hmm. might have been a bad translation or something. Basically, was saying, like, yeah, he proper hates the Jews. And the guy didn't understand why. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like, anti-Semitism was widespread. In fact, one thing worth mentioning. Um, at one point, the Imperial German Army was trying to, like, or, you know, make a a case for blaming the Jews for defeat in World War One, And what they actually found was that the Jews were a disproportionately large number of German soldiers. So oh. they actually completely undermined the thing they were trying to prove. Oh, shit. Um, but European anti-Semitism before World War Two basically comes down to um, two or three elements. So the first element is the Jews are powerful and behind everything and they control everything and they're like the international global money people so this is one element the jews are behind everything the jews control everything and this was a widespread view and it there's a small base which kind of where this starts as a point of truth and then obviously gets hugely exaggerated and twisted all propaganda has to serve something basically truthful in there somewhere as a start point so the truthful point is, Jewish people were overrepresented in the banking industry. This is true. But there's a reason for that. For centuries before, Jews were not allowed to do any other jobs or learn trades or have skills. So anything available was to be moneylenders. And secondly, Christians were forbidden by church law from lending money. So Jews were lending money because it was the only thing that available to them. Yeah, I was going to say, they've been fi- for thousands of years, they've been famous for that kind of like banking yeah, and jewellery they've been linked to and it's like it's a historical thing isn't it it's not I don't think it's like racist to be like Jews have got loads of money but they back then they they probably there was 
the Middle Age kings were well known for borrowing ju- money from the Jewish like communities because they because, had it. Yeah, because they're the only people who were allowed to mm. lend, and that's the important thing. But it's also like you know, you know, the Christians are like, okay, you guys can't do any of the jobs. You can only lend money. We are going to borrow money from you, and then we're going to hate you for lending us money. Yeah. But then the flip side of that was the conspiracy belief that um, Jews are all poor and full of disease and they're criminals. So these two things are already kind of contradictory. A bit racist for us to say that. <laughs> yeah, I hope no one ever takes this part out of context. And again, where does this come from? So where it comes from is, obviously you had established Jewish communities in different countries, where one of the largest Jewish communities was, was in the Russian Empire. And the Russian Empire, especially when it entered its death spiral around 1900, was violently anti-Semitic. And they didn't need to get into like elaborate conspiracies. It was just, you know, in Russia where you had a population of uneducated peasants, it was like, oh yeah, the Jews are stealing children. That yeah. sort of thing. And then whipping up a mob to go and burn their villages. And this really picked up around 1900. So obviously a lot of Jewish people fled from the Russian Empire and they migrated to Germany, to the UK. We have to remember this time, this time, at this point in time, there's a border between Germany and... Yeah, direct border. Um, And it goes directly through what had been the Kingdom of Poland, which which had been very tolerant of Jews, the safe haven for Jews in Europe, um, until it was taken apart by Russia, Prussia and Austria. So there's a lot of Jews in the Russian Empire, and the Russian Tsars are routinely whipping up anti-Jewish violence to kind of distract from other problems. What what I was going to say is that what, what's the reason for whipping up the violence against the Jewish communities? Did they have the money as well? No, this is purely like because like you know anti-Semitism in like medieval times throughout Europe is like along the lines of they kill Jews Jesus and they steal Christian babies and eat their blood. Oh, the old baby stealers. Yeah. And, you know, in Russia at this time, you could still make that appeal. Like, I think in Western Europe, this would have been laughed at as ridiculous. But in Russia, you could still do that. Like, right, the Russians... it's, very, it's a huge country, and there's not exactly a lot of education there either, is there? Exactly, and it's a time of uneducated, illiterate peasants. Like, the Tsarist authorities didn't believe in a Jewish conspiracy, and we know this, because there's a really famous conspiracy book called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is supposed to outline this Jewish conspiracy to rule the world. It was written by the Russian secret police. <laughs> when was this? Uh, about 1900-ish. Ah, okay. <laughs> so, well, and they thought they'd release that and that would be the evidence. Yeah, but loads of people believe that. Loads of people take okay. that as real. But it was categorically written by Russian secret police. Um, so obviously like a lot of Jewish people were fleeing from this, with this state organised violence, but obviously if you're fleeing, first of all, if your village is burning down and you're running away, you don't have a lot with you. Second, they're already coming from a poor and backward country and they're arriving in Western European societies where they don't really fit in. They're turning up in their village clothes. They may not speak the local language. Yeah. They find themselves in, you know, ghettos. And it's much like the same, you know, much the same story for like Italians arriving in New York or so on. It's like, you know, people kind of stuck and stick together. Yeah. So at the same time then in the European kind of anti-Semitic view. The, Ju- the Jews are both very powerful, also very weak. Controlling everything, but also this kind of low-class thing as well. And the third element that comes in after 1917 is that communists and Bolsheviks are Jewish. And that the communist takeover in Russia is a Jewish conspiracy. 
I've never seen that before. Yeah, that's a thing. Okay. And especially the Nazis really linked the two. And people still do that today, like on the far right. Um, and again, there is a kernel of truth here, which is that amongst the Russian Bolsheviks in 1917, disproportionately large number of Jews, most prominently Leon Trotsky. But listen to what I've just said about what Russia was like. You know, The state as a matter of policy was oppressing Jewish people. If you're joining a movement, communism, which is explicitly atheist and it proclaims the equality equal. of man, yeah. very appealing, obviously. Very appealing. If you're the alternative is, you know, crazy priests and angry peasants burning down your house because they think <laughs> you're taking the children. What are you going to choose? There's an obvious appeal to it. Pitchforks and that. So this is kind of a general European thing. But where the Nazis take it up a level is the extent to which they believe the Jews are behind and control everything. Hitler believed that Britain had deliberately started World War I to cripple Germany because Germany was like a rising power and it had a very how, pure... How did doubted Britain start World War I? Uh, Britain declared war on Germany, strictly speaking. Because yeah, Germany... yeah, I know that, but that was already after they declared war on... On Belgium. Fran- yeah. And Belgium, yeah. yeah. So what Hitler believed was that the Jewish bankers controlled the UK and they had pulled the strings on everyone to make everything in World War I happen. He believes the Jews were literally controlling everything from behind the scenes. Okay. Sounds a bit yeah. too full hatty, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. He believed there was a conspiracy of global Jewish bankers all working together and they controlled the UK, the US, and the USSR all at the same time. <clears throat> I bet so you believe you... they mounted still beams as well. Probably. <laughs> In one of them. But it's like, you just think how, like, incoherent that belief is like the uk the number one imperialist power the us the number one capitalist business power and the number one communist power all of which hated each other and had completely contradictory ideologies but hitler believed all of them controlled from the background uh by the jews so this is one element to start with on understanding the nazis and it's where you have to start with If nothing else makes sense if you don't follow this idea that they believe the Jews controlled everything. Now, the second thing that Hitler cared about was land. And there's a term, Lebensraum, which translates literally to living space. So What's this... that mean then? What's Where are we getting this word from? Yep, so this is the word that Hitler used, Lebensraum. And this is, again, this is Hitler's own... Own, own okay. So this is one of these things where people now find it hard to understand what Hitler meant. Because what it what it refers to is the belief that Germany should conquer land in Eastern Europe to have more room for the German people, right? What's it directly mean again? Living space. Okay. And again, definitely have I've heard teachers saying, obviously Hitler wanted the resources and the industry. Because we find it hard to believe that he's literally talking about land, but he really meant land, as in farmland. And this is a key concept in Nazism. Hitler believed it was essential that Germany would be able to feed itself, that it should have enough food to feed all of its population and to have a good standard of living. Um, Seems like a right idea, but it's very difficult to pull off when you're... uh, It's a problem we've got, like... 
in the UK, we've got a massive issue with this at the moment, obviously because of the massive amount of population. This, the farmland is all needed to build houses, but yet we most food in the UK, like if you buy meat when you're in the UK, it'll normally be, have a badge on it and said made in the UK or like mm. grown in the UK. So all the meat we eat and stuff, it was all stamped, say, made in the UK, and it's something they pride themselves on, but obviously it becomes very expensive when you're trying to become an industrial powerhouse to also be, like, a farming powerhouse. Yeah, so, I mean, Germany literally had more people than its own land could sustain, which is kind of normal for most European countries. European yeah. countries are small with a lot of people. But Hitler believed that the key to being a great superpower was that you should be able to feed your entire population. And he believed the reason that Britain was so Internally. Successful, yeah. That you don't need to import your food, that you just feed yourselves. And he believed the reason Britain was so powerful and successful was because the British had gone out and they'd conquered Canada and Australia and they had these huge farmlands to feed their population. That the British could feed themselves from their own empire. They didn't need to import food. He believed this was the key to British success. And similarly, like the uh, the United States, where they'd like expanded and opened up these huge farmlands, was the key to their success. This is an absolutely central belief in Hitler's first book, Mein Kampf, which he wrote while he was in prison after attempting to overthrow the government of Bavaria. Germany had to be able to to feed itself, and to do that, it needed to conquer the lands of Eastern Europe to get enough food. Importantly, it needed the land, it needed the food, it did not need the people. So you can already see where the logic of this <laughs> yeah. is going. He believed. That's a bit grim. Yeah. So Imperial Germany had ruled chunks of what had been Poland and was now again Poland. He believed that Imperial Germany had lacked the courage and the bravery to get rid of the Polish population. Hitler explicitly believed, as early as 1925, that the people of Poland had to be destroyed to make way for farmland to feed the German people. Hitler um, believed that because they didn't, weren't competing about food, that Britain and the UK could naturally ally, and that the way Germany would do this would be... Hang on, to... did you say Britain and the UK? Uh, Britain and Germany, sorry. <laughs> okay. Britain and Germany could naturally ally. All Germany had to do was not threaten British Empire and trade and that the two of them could align together against the United States. Oh, okay. So that was his plan then, to body up with That's us. what he would have liked. Which, obviously, when you're talking about... It's hard to think of the two things, but if you talk about England now, and then you talk about the British Empire, it's very different. Because mm -hmm. like, the British Empire was an imperialistic, like... Yeah. You know, we had, like, basically, we had colonies all over the world that just sent stuff to us to make us rich, didn't they? So it was very yeah. like exploitative. So you could understand why he would think like, "Oh, Britain's already exploiting people around the world. They won't have a problem with like genocide in Poles." Yeah, I'm so guessing like that's Hit probably where the logic yeah. comes from, isn't it? Hitler's it kind of that yeah. logic taken to its extreme. Like, well, if they treat these people as less, so obviously they wouldn't have a problem with genociding. Yeah, everybody. Um, another thing with this is that farming is a lot more relevant in Germany than you might expect. So obviously we think of Germany today as the economic superpower of Europe. And when we think about it in World Quite War II... <coughs> <laughs> I think the Treasury would like to swap the two sets of numbers. Definitely would. <laughs> Definitely would. Um, and we tend to you know, reflect this back. We think of Germany like in mid-century and we basically we picture much like the UK, like you know, a landscape of smokestacks and factories. 
But in Germany, 25% of the population still lived on the land. They were still farmers. UK was less than 10%. Okay. So Germany is very much a society in transition from agriculture to industry. Yeah. Um, and in fact, German government policy in the 19th century had been to use subsidies and tariffs to try and keep people on the land to prevent the cities from growing, to prevent the population of the cities getting too big. I suppose as well there's the thing of, you'll remember that Germany right now is a fairly new country. Like yep. It's formed of a lot of a countries, basically. So you have to, that's probably something they had to fight, and that's something they'd, they'd have to learn, you know, because you've gone from having, like, however many states, within 100 years... Less. Was, it's 50 years at this point Germany's existed. So before then, it was a confederation, wasn't it? Of, yeah, of uh, hundreds of different... Well, not hundreds not, by the 19th not, century. I think, yeah, probably like 20 by the 19th century. 20, 30 yeah. have been consolidated. But yeah. And most of those were small and poor and backward and basically existed to keep their rulers' lifestyle going. Yeah, just to clear it for the listeners as well, before Germany, what we're talking about is the North German Confederation, which was the sequel uh, the sequel to the Prussian Empire. Yeah, someone's been playing a lot of Victoria Free. Don't know what you're talking about, brother. <laughs> Don't know what you're talking about. Just did my Germany play through, though, if anyone cares. <laughs> so, yeah, Germany had gone through this process of going from lots of small powers to consolidation into a handful to unification in 1871 but when Hitler's writing Mein Kampf in 1925 that's what 54 years afterwards it's mm. not not long and again so we think of like in an urban landscape but 50% of Germans lived in communities of less than 20,000 people and the majority of those were less than 2,000 people mm, so it's a landscape of small towns to small villages the Nazis had a great belief in the purity of the countryside, of like, you know, the Nordic Aryan German farmer living on his land with his, you know, blonde wife and his healthy children and rejecting the influence of the city, reflecting Jewish influence. And just Where's that blonde s- thing come from, though? Because Saxons have got dark hair, look, Gus. It's uh, a sign of purity. Oh, okay. Because, like, you know, blonde hair and blue eyes only comes from Northern Europe, pretty much. So if you have something else, then it must have come from somewhere else. That's the idea okay. of it as an ideal. I was going to say, because it doesn't really make sense because Germany isn't all blonde-haired. Yeah, no, it's not It's majoritively dark hair, isn't it? Cause you know, it's like the joke of the time is that I wish I was blonde like Hitler, athletic like Goering, uh, slim like Goering. And yeah, Goering's a fat lad, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> He's a chunky boy. You'd never get him in an airplane, would you? Why didn't you charge the Luftwaffe? Yes. And he was and the fattest cunt you've ever seen in your life, weren't he? He's the only man to ever have been addicted to heroin and get fat. Yeah, that's an impossibility, isn't it? How often have you seen addicts on the street that are fat? Never. I know they can't afford to eat, like, because they spend all the money on drugs, but... Jesus, big lad. But, yeah, so... So this is Aki's ideal. Most Germans either lived in the countryside or their parents had still lived there. So they were unlike first-generation city dwellers. So when those two are taken together, it's more than 50% of the population. Yeah. Another important thing and last thing to mention on this is most German farmers lived in kind of abject poverty. We're going to come to that in a later episode when we talk about the reasons for the war in the East. Okay. So you're saying things like about how 
this is how Hitler felt and stuff like that. Like, where do you, where are you gathering all that from? Like, mm. obviously it's written down somewhere, but where does most of this information come from? Like, well, how do we know what his points of view on things are? Did he have like a memoir or something? Because I know he had a couple of like, he had a book, didn't he? That was found yeah. in that Mon Kampf. But I don't know <laughs> yeah. more. So he had two books. Um, the first one, as you say, is Mein Kampf. So he wrote this while he was in prison. I say wrote what he actually did was dictated it to Rudolf Hess, who then tried to hang on. Rudolf Hess, it was a buddy of his, was he? Or yeah, he was a close buddy. He was like, um, he was one of the influential early Nazis, and then he kind of lost power because he was just a guy. He was a guy that loved Hitler, but he wasn't a good politician. And then as they got bigger and more politicians got in, Hess just got squeezed out. Eventually, in 1940, he would like steal a plane, fly to England, believing he was going to go and negotiate peace with Churchill and the King, and he was just arrested. He spent the rest of his life in prison. He was still I'm in prison. Though. Yeah, he was in prison into the 80s or 90s he died. No way, God. He was in Spandau Prison in Berlin, and at one point, at the end, he was the only prisoner in Spandau Prison. What, what, what did he do bad? What, what was he like, a Nazi, was he? Did you say? Yeah, he was, was a top-level Nazi, like, oh, okay. top-ranked Nazi. But he lost influence over time. Okay. So, yeah, he dictated Mein Kampf in prison to Hess. Hess tried to make it into something that was vaguely a book. So Mein Kampf details Germany's need for this Lebensraum in the East. And mein Kampf? Like, Just out of interest, is that like my plan? Str- my struggle. Oh, okay. Um, same route as like in a Panzerkampfwagen. and it's the same, same yeah. word. Um, so it outlined the, the need for Lebensraum and this Jewish conspiracy to control the world. And he explained how communists and Marxists and Democrats and liberals are all enemies controlled by the Jews. And that they must take the land in the East and they must take it from the Slavic people who lived there. The Poles, the Czechs, the Slovaks, the Russians, the Ukrainians, so on. And these are viewed by the the Nazis as subhuman, less than human. The term they use is untermensch. And for them... They were not to be considered as equal human beings. They were something less and below. And I guess that that's probably evident in the cruelty of like the push, like when they did push through Poland. Like they, they're not exactly very hospitable hosts, were they? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Now the second book. This one doesn't really have a title, and it's a little bit strange because the book. Hitler wanted to publish it in 1928, but basically his publisher was like, eh, Mein Kampf isn't selling great, we don't want to dilute the market. Now, what I don't understand is why the second book was never published after Hitler was in power. Because later on, Mein Kampf was like, you know, being given to people as wedding gifts, like everyone received Mein Kampf. And it was like, you know, why did disseminate this propaganda? I don't understand why second book was never like this. If anyone does know why the second book was never published after Hitler was in power... Please let us know. Uh, you can email us at wearemakersahistory at gmail.com. If anyone actually knows, I would love to know that. Not as plug as well, bro. I saw what you did there. Yeah, that's good, that. Um, oh, sorry. You probably hear me dog barking in the background. Yeah, it's the third host of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the second... Where the first book is very focused on communism and the Soviet Union, the second book is very focused on the USA. And to give one quote, the European, whether he realises it or not, applies as the yardstick for his life the conditions of American life. 
So what Hitler's kind of come to here is that the dream standard of living for Germans is normal everyday life for Americans. Okay. And he's kind of realising like the plenty and the wealth that Americans have it's completely unattainable for Germans, but what Germans dream of is what Americans take for granted every day. You, know, you think of the idea like the American family home and everyone has a family car. In yeah. Germany, very few people own a car. You know, people travel by bicycle. Okay. Um, so it identifies that the communist Soviet Union is the immediate danger, but the USA is the long-term danger. And what he also notes is he takes the example of the U.S. auto industry, so the car industry. This had a lot of influence on people in the early 20th century because it was something completely, you know, the most technologically advanced thing, the car, and the American car industry was building on a huge scale. You think of like the Ford plants in Detroit, like building tens of thousands of cars, and European car makers never came anything close to this. What Hitler realised was that the American car industry could build so many because of the economy of scale. They could build lots of cars that made it cheaper to produce. And the reason they could build lots of cars, because there's a huge American internal market of people who can buy the cars. Yeah. So the people have got to have the wealth to be able to buy the cars in the first yeah. place. Haven't they? Okay. Yeah. It's like the idea of like, you know, Ford, that his employees should be able to buy the cars that they make. Yeah. Obviously, this is because America has a massive internal market because it has so many people. No European country comes close. I mean, the closest things are like the British and French empires, but the people living in those empires don't have the quality of life that the people in the homeland do. So what Hitler kind of realised from this is if Germany is going to compete with the United States on the same level, Germany must conquer Europe. Um, that's a bit of a jump. <laughs> but well, that's that's the kind of logic. If you, yeah, if you look at the scale and size of America as well. So yeah, if you start with that logic of we must compete with them, and the way we compete is the size of the market, this eventually leads you to we must conquer Europe. Yeah. Okay. And Hitler himself said that American dominance threatens to reduce Europe to quote the status of Holland or Switzerland. So you see the way those had previously been major powers, which are now very much secondary. This is not to say that Hitler believed in, like, European Union or European unity. He believed that was a Jewish idea, because of course he did. Um, What he wanted (laughs) was Germany to conquer and dominate everybody else. By conquering them, Germany would raise their racial value with their superior German-ness. Yeah. Both books, Mein Kampf and the untitled second book, both emphasise we must have an alliance with the British Empire. Okay. Now, this is a little bit of a side thing, but you often hear people talk about the Nazis being a socialist or Marxist movement. Categorically, they are not. There's a lot of reasons to this, but I think... Well, they're called national socialists, aren't they? In German, it's one word. So it's not quite the same in English where it's like, oh, it's obvious, whereas in... Also, like... They wanted to appeal to the German workers. Like, oh, yes, we're socialist and appeal to the German military as we're nationalist. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But the really big difference. Marxists believe that economics drives history. That history is the result of material consequences, right? So it's all about own, who owns what, who has power because they own stuff, right? The idea of like class struggle, working class and 
capitalist mm-hmm. class. Hitler did not believe economics drove history, and economics as history is the the key belief in Marxism. Hitler believed that um, history is driven by the struggle between different races and different peoples to control the means by which to live, i.e. the strongest groups will take the farmland needed to survive and flourish, and the weak ones get pushed off their farmland, and that's they deserve to lose. Sounds like a bunch of bullshit to me, bruv. Yes, but he really believed this. Because he was and top gazer. To... <laughs> Hitler believed that the role of government in Germany was to prepare the German people for a race, race, race war between Jewish-controlled America and Germany. Ah, oh, okay. That's where he believed this needed to get to. So he must have had a plan then if he was talking about like this, the whole overarching game that he's got in his mind of combating against uh, US dominance, well, Jewish dominance of the US, <laughs> uh, it, as it is in his mind. Like, where does his plan start then? Like, where mm-hmm. there must have been like massive like economic reforms and stuff like that. You'd expect. Yeah. So how did so, he start this? Where's the process go with it? So I've got to remember, Hitler comes to power in at the end of 1932, start of 1933. And that's the time of economic crisis, right? So we said there's six, seven million people unemployed. It's the time of the Wall Street crash and the Great Depression. Hitler's concern, then, is to get the economy whipped into shape for fighting a war, and he doesn't care at all about the unemployment, really. He doesn't care about the German worker, really. He cares about getting Germany into a machine that's going to be able to fight a war against the United States. Now... Regardless of what had happened in terms of leaders, and as I said last time, like Hitler coming into power is kind of statistically very unlikely. He was supposed so to be a the... puppet, well, I know, but exactly. Like... And like the whole thing where he came in, it's just one of these like so many things could have stopped it along the way. He was very well known for being a very good public speaker, though, and that obviously goes a long he way. Was. When <clears throat> this is before any sort of media, like I think paper, and did they even have right? Did they have like radios that people could tune into yet? They or had radios. Speech. And... That's perfect for it, isn't it? It's the perfect medium for him because he was yeah. so well known for being a great public speaker. They had so they had radios and Goebbels, the propaganda minister, he made a real drive to produce more radios and get them out. And they only had certain channels they could tune to to make sure all Germans could listen to Hitler. I bet Goebbels was a proper conniving chap being the oh, yeah. media guy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, he did he a was... lot in the as yeah. well, to be fair. He did a lot to get Germany, to, the Nazi party, sorry, specifically to where it is, where it was. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, Nazis, the Nazis wouldn't have gone into power without Goebbels, I think. And they probably would have struggled to hold on to it as much mm. without Goebbels. So Goebbels but, was the chief um, like, film guy. minister. Wow. Yeah, but wasn't he like, his title was some like Fil- film, yeah, film and uh, something he, minister. He did, yeah, minister. he did like lots of stuff. He did like film, he did art, he did... Radio was his big one. That was his big thing. But he also produced a lot of film. Um, I can imagine him on the morning show. Like the boing, boing, boing noise. Welcome. Good morning, Germany. It's me, Goebbels. Goebbels on the radio. (laughs) I really trashy, like, local radio. (laughs) It's a sunny morning in Berlin. Watch out for those Jews. (laughs) Dang, 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 dang. (laughs) Dang. Can you, imagine what that, can you imagine what that would be like, though? Imagine, yeah. like, a, 
you know, Nazi public radio. Yeah. It's just... <laughs> yeah. And I like, that was some dark shit that went over them airways. Well, to be fair, like you mentioned the film, there was a German filmmaker called Lenny Reifenstahl, and basically she invented so many of the kind of classic shots and images of modern cinema. So many things borrow from her filmmaking, and especially one called The Triumph of the Will, which was filmed at a Nazi rally. So many films reference it in terms of the style and the way it's done. So what you're saying is he did a good job. <laughs> As a propaganda guy, yeah, there was never anyone better. It was fantastic. Oh, Horrible and evil, but... I don't think anyone's ever said Goebbels fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be the quote I'm going to pick out. In my, in, in what to I'm give you an example. Of. To give you an example. You know The Lion King? So the 1990s yeah. cartoon film. Yeah, great. There's a bit where the baddie lion standing on a rock while all the hyenas are marching past. Yeah. Scene yeah, scene, that stolen. looks proper Nazi like now you've said it's that. Because they're frog marching, from... basically, aren't they? Yes. Man? Yep, exactly. Ah. It's taken directly from Triumph for the Will. Okay. It's so it's had a huge cool. cultural impact, like a Nazi mm-hmm. filmmaking. But regardless of what had happened in Germany, the 1930s was going to be a crisis decade. The US, which is the power that needs to be the one keeping everything together, is seriously weakened by the Great Depression, right? Well, they're the, they're the financial kingpin at the moment, aren't they? Exactly. Links through them. So even if you had a well-behaved Germany, this was going to be a trouble period. But obviously the worst possible human being to get into power anywhere got into power in Germany. Okay. So Hitler is picked out by this kind of conservative conspiracy and they get him into power as Chancellor, which is the head of government in Germany. So that's like our Prime Minister or America's um, President. America doesn't have an equivalent. It's like the UK Prime Minister, they also have a President. Okay. But the President is supposed to be a figurehead, but the President has lots of emergency powers. Yes, it's very different to the States. and like A lot of European... I think uh, the Czech Republic has a President and a Prime Minister, don't they? Yeah, exactly. And the President's more like, like you said, ceremonial. Prime Minister does the actual one in the country. Yeah. But the German President could access a lot of power in the right circumstance, which is important. So the Chancellor is the President, then? The Chancellor is the Prime Minister. Okay, so he has actual control. He's day-to-day control. President is the figurehead. So, 35th January 1933, Hitler becomes Chancellor of Germany. Four days later, he has a meeting with the military leadership of Germany. And basically, he sits them down, and he just repeats the whole of Mein Kampf and his second book at them. So all of this about the Lebensraum, allying the British and cleansing the Eastern people, and all of this, he just shouts it at them, basically. How does that go down? They sit and listen. Like, the, the, the German military, they're not necessarily Nazi, but they are very conservative, and they would like to have the Kaiser back. Well, I'd imagine they're very Prussian. <laughs> very <laughs> Prussian. Military, so... Yeah. There's a lot of von something-something generals. Yeah. Very aristocratic, very Prussian. They're not necessarily all about the Nazis, because the Nazis are a bit weird of an ideology, but they're definitely very conservative. They all wear them hats. What's them Prussian hats? They've got a lot of them fur hats, are not they? Or is that what the cars used to wear? It's like a big uh, top hat, but it's like wool or something. Like, no? Are you on about a bearskin, which is like... No, 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 no. The Prussian, oh. like the classic Prussian hat's the pointy hat with the... With the yeah, spike. but there's there's like a... You see it sometimes on um, 
hearts of iron and the general's got like a big it's almost like a woolen hat rather than okay please continue i'm gonna start googling this in the background please google hats swear i've made it up um and he explains to them that his domestic policy is only going to exist for the purpose of giving rearmament to the german army okay everything else that he does is going to be for the purpose of rebuilding the army he tells them two goals that he wants to achieve. First of all, is to become powerful enough that France can never threaten Germany again. And second is to conquer an empire in Eastern Europe. You're holding a hat up to me. That is a Hussar hat, and that is associated with General Mackinson specifically. Ah, okay. Is that who he is? I think so, yeah. For, for the listeners, I'm holding up a picture of a, the dude that I'm referencing. So he's like an old white dude with an incredible moustache. Very, very cool moustache. And he's got like a cool hat with a skull in the front of it. It's like, I don't know if it's like beaver or something. It, yeah, that's so that's a Hussar hat, which is traditionally worn by 19th century light cavalry. Oh, um, okay. British Army still has Hussars. They wear the same hat without the skull. Oh, okay. I think I think he's what I've seen, and that's where I was getting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. He was a general in the First World War. Um, one of Germany's better generals. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So, a week after this meeting, so four days in, he's meeting with the army, then a week later he's meeting with his cabinet, and he tells them, quote, The future of Germany depends exclusively on the reconstruction of the Wehrmacht. All other tasks must cede precedent to the task of rearmament. What's the Wehrmacht? So the Wehrmacht, people, you often use them in German army, but what it means is the German military as a whole. Okay. Uh... It's like there is like force or body and marked as power or something like that. But it's the military. Um, So even in January or February of 1933, Hitler is saying everything else is secondary to the army and the army comes first. Well, all these Prussian generals are instantly going to be on his side, aren't they? If they're like all these aristocratic geezers in the cool hats sat round and then this new guy comes in and says, listen... My concern is getting you guys in ship shape. They're all going to, regardless exactly. of ideology, they're going to be like, ooh, this guy's nice. And he's and they're exactly. the power that he needs. He needs exactly. them men, doesn't he? And you think it's come off of 15 years of the Treaty of Versailles, limiting the size yeah. of Germany's army. They feel humiliated. Perfect audience. Mm. Especially considering, the, I suppose those generals, a lot of them are old, like World War One generals. Um, most point. most of them wouldn't have been World War One generals. They would have been like middle rank officers. Well, like yeah. So I mean, when I said general, I just meant like World War One veterans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's but what they I meant basically. So there they is that yeah. living memory, that embarrassment definitely, definitely. from like that German Prussian like military might that mm-hmm. must must have been so important to them because these aristocrats, their, their aristocratic lifestyle revolves around the military, and it has for hundreds of years, really, hasn't it? For exactly. German, this German yeah. nation. And like the whole like Prussian self-image, just like you know the thing Voltaire wrote in the 18th century: Prussia is not a country with an army; it's an army with a country. Exactly, yeah. So, and these military people that that they live and breathe that. So to exactly. chirp them up as easily as he did, <laughs> that's going to get them on side, isn't it? Yeah. So you know you can imagine the army pretty swayed by this. Mm. So, on the 20th of February, so again we're like less than a month into him being in power. He has a meeting with the heads of German industry. All of the big companies are there. IG Farben, Krupp, Deutsche Bank, AEG. All of them are there. You know Krupp's still going? 
Yeah, yeah, all of those gun producers. Yeah, they're called ThyssenKrupp now, but they're yeah. still going. But all of those, like AEG, they make electronics. Yeah, and yeah stuff. they're massive. Com- I, I, I did it with AEG stuff in my industry, not heavy industry. And IG Farb and the biggest chemical company in the world. Yeah. So you sit down with all of these big heads of German industry, and he lays out an agenda to them. Now, with these, he doesn't give them the we're going to go and conquer everybody. We're not going. He doesn't tell them we're going to genocide the Slavs and the Jews. This isn't the speech he gives. But what he does tell them is that he's going to destroy the German left wing. He's going to destroy the socialists. He's going to destroy the trade unions, and he will end democracy. Goering is at the meeting, and he says that the next election will surely be the last election for the next ten or probably even 100 years. So, is this a threat to the industrialists, or is this a no, promise of, it's like, a promise. you guys are in for life sort of promise? Yes, because then they ask them for money to pay for their election campaign. So ah. it's a promise. If you pay for us to win this election, we will get rid of the left and we'll get rid of democracy. So basically everyone that stands against you guys as industrialists. Yes. Smart thinking. You know they... what, the more we go on, the more I'm turning to him. He seems to be... Maybe I'm a Oh, God, I've radicalised you. Oh, God. So that happens, mate. Yeah, bad people getting radicalised all the time. But podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> so the industrialist, you know, he's not signing up for a war, but he's signing... It's very clear what he's telling them to have. They hand well, over... They're, they're, gonna, they're only going to make money from war. Like... I know, you, like you said, he hasn't told them there's war, but even if they caught wind of that, it's like, I make steel for a living and there's a war happening. Yes. Yeah. You know, you, the demand's going to increase. Like, yeah, and it's like, you know, it's not like a secret. Mein Kampf has been out for eight years. Mm. The industrialists agreed to hand over three million Reichsmarks to pay for the election. So they knew what they're paying for. So you can see Hitler's constituency, the military and the industrialists. So again... Mentioned before, sometimes people talk about, oh, the Nazis are socialist. They're clearly not. No. Their first target is the left wing. So, one week later, on the 27th of February, 1933, the German Reichstag, which is the parliament, equivalent to, you know, Houses of Parliament or the US Senate building, burns down. Huge fire. Uh... You can imagine how traumatic it would be if, like, the House of Commons burned down in a massive blaze. Yeah. The Nazi Party immediately blame communists. I thought they were going to blame the Jews because that would have been the that would have been my go-to. For <laughs> blame the for it. Yeah, they blame it on the communists, but the now, communists are Jews according to them. So exactly, blaming the Jews. Okay. It all intertwines. Yeah, um, it's like a broken record, and it lots of yeah. like, oh, let's blame Jewish people. <laughs> <laughs> it's like. You have a magic eight ball, but it's really racist. <laughs> yeah, it's just every option is the Jews. <laughs> it was there, it's magic eight ball. Oh, how am I going to fix it? Kind of made the Jews. Oh, so we've got to kill the Jews. There we go. <laughs> Not bad. So anyway, so the Reichstag burns down. They immediately blame the communists for it. It's never going to be known for certain, but almost certainly the Nazi party did it. <laughs> It's never going to be known for certain, but almost certain. Like, it was the Nazis. Well, so, Goering... sabotage Yeah, Goering Black is flag control... operation. It's fucking Ex- started. Exactly. Black... Yeah, false flag, man. False flag. False flag. 
So Goering is controller of the police in Prussia, which includes Berlin at this time. Hang right? on, so was Goering in charge of the police? He's, he's the Air Force guy, I know. He's the Air Force guy, but he's also the police guy and interior minister of Prussia, which makes okay. up like half of Germany. So what's what what is Prussia like economically at this point? Is it like what I'd imagine Prussian Empire eighteen hundreds Victoria is? Is no. that Prussia? Okay. Um actually okay, yeah. So basically at the start date of Victoria Free in eighteen thirty six, what Prussia controls, so that's all of like the Rhineland, all the industrial areas in the West, and like classic Prussia in the East. Yeah. This is Prussia. So this is majoritively North Germany for the people who don't play Paradox computer games. North this is and like, West Germany. Yeah, but so like basically a big blob of North Germany and North East Germany and then a random blob of West Germany that's not linked to the rest of it. But this one state makes up 50% of the entirety of Germany. Okay. So being like the minister-president of Prussia... Is a very powerful... Very problem. powerful position. There was a tunnel between Goering's headquarters and the Reichstag. So almost oh, nice. certainly he was sending his his folks in to go set the fire through the tunnel. We'll never know for certain, but almost certainly this is why it, how it happened. So basically the Nazis invented false flag operations. Yes. They would use <laughs> them all the time from here on out as well. Oh, okay. Oh, and that, okay, I didn't realise that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they they, they did the masters of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did probably have well a right the... wing in America blame false flag operations on a lot of stuff, but yet the Nazis, who were like a right wing political party, used them extensively. <laughs> as well as Russia, that I would say is a heavily right wing leaning party. It's a weird coincidence that, it's isn't funny it? how that happens, isn't well, it? No. <laughs> <laughs> There's something here to these, all these songs. <laughs> There's a link. But yeah, so like even when they invaded Poland, they'd set up like a false flag operation the day before to like justify it. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, they literally did, didn't they? That's how yeah, the war started. They faked an flag. attack on a radio station. Yeah. Anyway, off topic. Um, so Hitler immediately blames the communists. Remember, the Communist Party was very big in Germany. It was like one of the three biggest parties at any given time. He uses this to pass a thing called the Enabling Act, which gives him emergency powers. He's like, the communists are going to rise up, we're going to have another revolution, we have to have special powers to stop this now. I thought Enabling was when you've got, like, a real fat partner and then you keep feeding them. It's like, Enabling. <laughs> you know, when not people are really overweight, yeah. you keep making them cakes. Yep. Or people yep. are like crack addicts and you'd be like, oh, I'll buy you a little bit of crack if you want. Yeah. So it's a bit like that. It's enabling his uh, special powers. Well, that's something we're probably going to get to at some point is is, uh, Hitler's massive addiction to drugs. I'm sure that's going to come up at some point. Yeah, definitely we need to get to that one. Yeah. So anyway, so the Nazis are clearly prepared to go. So they begin suppressing the Communist Party. They arrest the leaders. The Social Democrats, the other left-wing party, see which way the wind is blowing. Their leadership flees to Prague. There's... An uptick in street violence and control of the media and censorship. You want to say something? No, no. no. I was just listening really intently, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> was it because I, so. I was doing that fish? Yeah, your mouth went over. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I, was, like... I, was, I, was, I was just paying a lot of attention to okay. this, mate. So the communist leaders end up in prison. The social democrats flee to Prague. And what follows is an election in the next month. So in the March election, so coming matter of weeks and days after the burning of the Reichstag, 
False flag. And bear in mind, the false flag. So the main opposition has been decimated. They've either been imprisoned or fled. The street violence from like Nazi street folks is out of control. All media shut down. They have the next election. This is the last election that will be held in Germany until after the war. So he was right then? Yeah, he was dead right. <laughs> you weren't lying. And now, bear in mind, of all of these advantages in his favour, the Nazi party get 44% of the vote. Well, that's enough to win, isn't it, if there's more than two It's enough to win, absolutely. It's enough to win. But even in all these advantages, the the Nazi party could never get a majority. Well, that's sort of because of what you said earlier on, isn't it? They were a minor party, I suppose. And Mm. a lot of this has been forced through, like... If you work your bollocks off, like with, with stuff like this, like getting your getting those marches constant, like making films and literature and propaganda, like they've made a real effort. But I think that just shows how much pre-war that it doesn't seem like no one was that bothered by the Nazi Party because I think a lot of people following were, in there. Yeah, I think a lot of people got very complacent about them. Like, oh, well, these guys are just a bunch of clowns. We can control them. And then they lost control of it. And I think it's almost that's... like there's an election I can think of that happened pretty recently where everyone's like, he'll never get into power. <laughs> because that would be ridiculous. And then yeah. he got into power. Yeah, I think there is a similarity. It was I mean, obviously, ridiculous. Obviously, you know, we shouldn't like glib in drawing comparison with the Nazis. Like, obviously, the Nazis were uniquely terrible evil. Oh yeah, completely. Yeah. I'm not linking anything in modern <laughs> day to that by any. No, but what I'm going to say is like that thing of underestimating a dangerous actor. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I think um, we're very. I think we're very lucky that these kind. Well, I'm sure these views do exist in some crazy countries. Or you know, there is like the military. Uh, a junta that's just taken out, taken over uh, Niger. Yeah, like, obviously that's happening. It does happen still around the world, but generally, I think people have wisened up to these kind of things, haven't they? I think honestly, a lot of it has been the experience of World War Two has made a lot of things unacceptable to say in public. Yeah, or to you know, beliefs or ideas like you know, people in the early twentieth century like loved the idea of political violence. Like they're like, oh yeah, war is fantastic. Which would nowadays find such a strange position. Yeah, yeah, like you'd never think that, would you? Yeah. With what's going on in Russia and Ukraine at the moment, like obviously everyone wants the bloodshed to stop, but it's at what cost, and it, you know what I mean? It's there's, I know there's a lot of people like shouting out with that at the moment, like oh yeah, just let the, we just need to stop the war. It's like yeah, but you can't just stop a war. Like that, you can't. Right, boys, everyone stop. Yeah, so you know, I think like. Sometimes when you've got like a uniquely evil thing, you you have to stand up to it. Like if you stop the war as it is, then if you don't, in. if you don't push back on Germany when they try and invade stuff, it'll come back to haunt you. Who was it who told us that? And then it happened, didn't it? I don't mean Germany now. Like when I say, I'm talking historically, <laughs> I don't mean this to German people. You all say, like I'm cool with you. But back in this time, who was it who said it that you can't when uh, Germany was trying to expand the borders? Yeah, we said this back in the first episode, didn't we? We talked about the French Prime Minister Raymond Poincaré in 1921 said, if we don't stop Germany from breaching the treaty, we're going to have another war. Yeah. People people knew it was coming. People saw it coming. Um, uh, Just to finish up, there was a French general, I think it was Ferdinand Foch. Ferdinand's not a very French name. I thought it would be Francois. Oh, I suppose, yeah, if you say it like that. 
Um, and basically, when they signed Versailles, he was like, this isn't a peace, this is a truce for 20 years. And he didn't mean that, like, oh, this is such a harsh treaty. He's like, this this isn't solving the problem. They're yeah. going to be back for another round. And 21 years later, there we he go. was right. All right, so we'll wrap it up there, because we've gone on a bit. Uh, and next time, then, we'll start looking at how how Hitler started um, using the economy to his advantage and how they went into um, rearmament, how rearmament got started. Nice, bruv. Nice. Very much informative. I feel like we covered quite a lot there. That was decent. Appreciated it, bruv. Great research as always, my friend. Thank you. (laughs) And yeah, on the topic of research, so as I mentioned last time, this is from a book called The Wages of Destruction. Also, I got the name of the other book, The Vanquished, the author horribly wrong. Guy is... Sorry. <laughs> Literally, he's looking back at his bookcase now to see what the author's name is. That's how much of a bother he's put into this. Literally, he's just talking his headphones off and walked to his fucking bookcase <laughs> to have a look what the book was called. The author is Robert Gerwarth. I think that's how it's pronounced. Um, I invented some random name because I confused it with a different book completely. Um, well, that's so, not yeah, if you... Of you to do, Ross. Oh, no, I'm terrible. So, if you want to read more about this, um, I recommend both of those. Adam Tooze's book is very much about the economic side. The Vanquished is more about um, the political consequences of the defeat and like the political chaos in Germany and other countries. Um, I think together it gives you a good picture. Nice. I'm not going to read them, to be fair, because I've got you to do it for me. Yeah. To be um, completely that's... honest, I won't read it, but uh, good luck <laughs> to anybody who does. <laughs> All right, then. I suppose we'll wrap it up there. It's been good. Uh, I've got another dragon soup as well. We, we paused it halfway through because my wife came out and brought me another another couple of cans of dragon soup. So how about yeah. we crack these dragon soups and listen to this back and make sure it's not full of swear words? Oh, that'd be terrible if it was. Well, imagine <laughs> if you'd gone in there halfway through and started praising Hitler. Yeah, no, that'd be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, you've made it this far. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's up on the Twitter and the, the Google and whatever and that. And it's, yeah, it's lovely. Yeah, you can follow us on Twitter at, uh, at Makers of History, if Twitter still exists by the time this comes out. You mean X? X. We can exit at each other. Oh, yeah, exit each other. I like that. <laughs> awesome. Well, See you next time. Thank you very much, everyone. Bye-bye.